five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Q Podcast. Welcome to the first episode in this year's summer series, where we feature three compelling talks from other creators. In this week's episode, we hear from George Sowers, who will speak on mining the moon for fun and profit. Dr. Sowers is a professor of practice at the Colorado School of Mines, who works on the world's first and only graduate program in space resources. This talk was featured in the mid-June Future in Space Operations weekly teleconference. The slides are available with the podcast on our website with the URL link in the show description. Listen in. All right, so my name is George Sowers. I'm with the Colorado School of Mines. Um, I think uh, many of you knew me in a prior life when I was uh, either Lockheed, uh, then with the United Launch Alliance, uh, where I was chief scientist uh, before I retired. Um, I joined the School of Mines uh, less than two years ago to support a new graduate program, in fact, the world's only graduate program in space resources. And uh, in our just our second semester, uh, we're already up to 46 students, and we'll be over 70 um, by the fall. And uh, if you're interested in the program, um, talk to Angel, who's on this call, and uh, you can take our courses from anywhere in the world. It's uh, fully online. So having made that shameless plug, I will get going. Um, the title of my talk is Mining the Moon for Fun and Profit. Um, to me, it seems self-evident that mining the moon would be fun. Um but what remains to be seen is, and is really the crucial question, can we make money um, mining the moon? And so that, that will be uh, most of what my talk is about. Um, going on to chart two, um, one of the great discoveries of planetary science over the last decade or two has been that water is ubiquitous in the inner solar system. Um, it's at the poles of Mercury. Um, we know it's on, uh, at least chemically bound in the rocks of many, many asteroids. Um, and there may actually be ices, um, on asteroids as well. Um, and we're learning every day, um, that water is very abundant on Mars. Um, that's good news for space exploration because, and, and eventual settlement because we need water for life. Um, you can split it and obtain oxygen for breathing air. Pound for pound, it's one of the best radiation shielding materials known. And in particular, in the, in the topic of my talk and the topic of my interest over the last five to ten years has been that you can split water and liquefy it into liquid oxygen, liquid hydrogen propellants. Um, and uh, I'll show you a little bit more coming up, but if you have a space source of propellant, Every mission beyond low Earth orbit can benefit in terms of lower cost. Um, and in particular, that enables commercialization of cislunar space, which I've been focused on. And it also enables affordable Mars missions. Um, and uh, I won't get, get into that much, but I think the, the data is pretty, um, pretty firm on that. Uh, going on to chart three, 
this is a, a figure that's now becoming famous from uh, a paper that was published um, a little less than a year ago, uh, late summer of uh, 2018, um, by Shui Li and his from University of Hawaii and his colleagues. Um, and uh, what this chart shows is indications of ice on the surface at the lunar poles. And uh, each green dot represents a pixel, pixel of about 280 meters on a side um, <clears throat> with weight percents of up to 30%. Um, and uh, ice on the surface is important because, as you, as you would know from common sense, that if the ice is on the surface, it's pretty easy to get at. Um, I like to use the analogy of the gold miners that came to Colorado in the 1850s. You know, the first folks here were picking gold nuggets out of the streams, and the only equipment you needed to do that was a gold pan. Um, you know, eventually when that easy-to-get gold um, ran out, you had to bring in the picks and the and the uh, dynamite and start, you know, blasting holes in the sides of the mountains. But, you know, relative to where we are with respect to lunar ice, we're at the stage where we can go in there and pick up gold nuggets um, and get the easiest stuff. But, you know, indications, remote sensing indications like you see on this chart – um, are still a very long way from having an economical source of ice that you could then refine, process and refine into propellant. Um, going on to chart four, um, the good news is that the mining industry and the, and the uh, oil and gas industries have um, – all right. Okay, so slide three, we talked about, uh, you know, some remote sensing results that indicate ice – um, unfortunately, just having exploration results is not enough um, to economically develop a resource. Um, the good news is that the terrestrial mining and oil and gas industries have time-tested processes to do this kind of stuff. Um, and you can see the chart here um, that's from the Committee for Mineral Reserves, International Reporting Standards. Um, where we are today is in the upper left-hand corner of this chart with exploration results. Um, in order to have a economically viable uh, resource, we need to be down to the lower right, which is uh, a proven reserve. And uh, there are two dimensions on this chart. The vertical dimension uh, is increasing levels of geologic knowledge. Um, in the mining industry, this is otherwise known as resource exploration or prospecting. Uh, the right hand, the, the horizontal dimension are all the other things it takes. Um, you know, the mining technology, processing, uh, the economics, the marketing, um, legal considerations, are there environmental considerations, you know, all the other things. Um, and these are collectively known as the modifying factors. So to address the, uh, the vertical dimension, a year ago at the Colorado School of Mines, uh, we held a one-day workshop at the tail end of the Space Resources Roundtable uh, to lay out a roadmap for uh, resource exploration or prospecting of these lunar ice deposits. And there are four phases that uh, we came up with um, that are shown at the bottom of this chart. Uh, the first phase is uh, what we call the ground truth missions. Uh, these would be simple landers that would go into the permanently shadowed regions 
and uh, obtain direct data on the nature and characteristics of the ice that's there. Um, and You're this on is slide five now? Is that correct? I'm on slide uh, five, yes. Sorry about that. And uh, this is important because we have a wealth of remote sensing data from LRO and Chandrayaan and, and other missions, but uh, we don't have any any hard data actually inside the PSRs other than the single data point we got from LCROSS. Um, and this would allow us to correlate what we're seeing from above with remote sensing to what's actually there on the surface. Um, I would point out that those missions would be uh, would be very suitable for the CLIPS program and would gather scientific information as well as uh, resource characterization information. Uh, the second phase would be um, CubeSats or impactor swarms, um, and these are necessary because the data we have, while good, is of low spatial resolution. Um, for example, the uh, you know, the neutron spectrometer data we have is only 10 to 20 kilometer resolution. Um, we really need data that's uh, of, you know, meter scale or tens of meter scale uh, resolution to be able to measure these resources. Um, the third phase would be um, what we call tethered sensor landers. This is a way to use a simple lander with ejectable sensor packages to gather data um, across a you know, say 100 to 200 meter region uh, without having to provide mobility, which adds a lot of cost. Um, that that mission would also be um, easily done using clips. And then it's only at the end where you do you put the uh, complex rover to go actually, you know, do a grid across this target site. Um, the, to actually be able to quantify the amount of ice that's available and verify that it's economically accessible. Um, in the oil and gas industry, this is this is called uh, avoiding the dry hole. Um, you know, if, if you can imagine uh, developing an oil field, you do your remote sensing, then you come in and do your geophysical surveys. And it's only at the end that you bring in, you know, the the drill rig and start drilling test wells. And if you come up dry, if you drill a dry hole, then, you know, that's a bad thing. You've just wasted the money uh, for that particular drill, um, that particular hole. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a paradigm shift um, when you're doing resources. Um in, a, in the science world, even a dry hole has a lot of good scientific information. In the resource business, a dry hole is to be avoided. Um, it's a waste of money and people get fired. All right, moving on to chart six. Um, so to address the other dimensions, um, back in 2016 when I was still at United Launch Alliance, um, we came up with a business case for buying propellant liquid oxygen, liquid hydrogen propellants in cislunar space. Um, it was based entirely on lowering the cost to move commercial satellites from low Earth orbit to geosynchronous orbit. Um, we based the business case on that scenario for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's the most challenging for the use of space source propellant because you have to bring that propellant all the way down to LEO. And then you're competing with the guys that can launch propellant from Earth into LEO. 
Um, but the other reason is that um, the uh, commercial market for geosats is an existing market. And, you know, part of the problem of developing commercial activities in cislunar space is, you know, that, you know, the classic chicken and the egg thing. Um, you know, there's no sellers of commodities in cislunar space right now because there are no buyers of commodities in cislunar space. Um, and there are no buyers because there are no sellers. You know, somebody's got to go first, and so this was an overt um, attempt by ULA to try and stimulate the market. Um, you know, I got up in front of an audience of space mining people and, and offered to buy 1,100 metric tons of propellant per year on the surface of the moon, um, and I'd be willing to pay $500 a kilogram or less, kind of the opening salvo in, in a negotiation. Um, is everybody, can people still hear me? Yes, we can. Okay, I'm going to ask every once in a while just to make sure I don't inadvertently drop again. On to chart seven. So some of you may have seen this chart before, but I think it's worth repeating. Yeah, this this gives you the the numerical basis of the business case I just described. Um, The blue bars on this chart represent the cost to move mass from Earth to some destination in cislunar space. these numbers are all based on um, projected prices for Vulcan ASIS, uh, ULA's next generation rocket, um, as of a couple of years ago. Um, I will point out that that uh, ULA's past CDR on that system and uh, expects to fly sometime in 2021. So that's pretty close. Um, but you can see, you know, the price to to launch mass to low Earth orbit around five. $4,000 a kilogram, uh, double that to GTO, quadruple that to GSO uh, to get out to L1 or the gateway, they're roughly equivalent, is about $10,000 a kilogram. And then to land all the way on the surface of the moon, uh, it costs about $35,000 a kilogram. And again, this is using the uh, the variant of ULA's ACES upper stage uh, lander variant called Zeus uh, once upon a time. Um, so the business case actually works if you can buy propellant in low Earth orbit cheaper than you can purchase it or cheaper than you can launch it there yourself. And so we arbitrarily set a number of 3,000 as being lower than 4,000. That's the green bar you can see in low Earth orbit. Um, and then backing that up to the moon based on transportation costs from one place to another um, we would be willing to offer $500 a kilogram on the surface of the men. And keep in George, mind, yes. George, just like real, real quick, this is a great chart. Um, it's one of the killer charts. Are we basically seeing here the effect of the gravity wells? That they're fighting against gravity all the way from the Earth, less so from the moon or an asteroid. Is it primarily uh, it's all gravity about, It's all about Delta B. Okay, so so basically that, yes. Yes, it's gravity well, delta V, um, the combination of both. <clears throat> Got it. Okay, good. Thanks. Um, one of the interesting things on this chart, which I think is, is probably the most important point on this chart, is that if we have propellant available on the surface of the moon for 500 bucks a kilogram, or at the gateway or you know, L1 for $1,000 a kilogram, those little green bars, 
then you can use that propellant to refuel missions coming from Earth, and that's what is represented by the orange bars. So the cost to get from Earth to the gateway without refueling is 10000 a kilogram. If you can refuel en route with lunar propellant, you can cut the cost in half to 5000 a kilogram. And then even more significantly, if you can refuel on the way from Earth to the surface of the moon, you can cut the cost by more than a factor of three. 35 drops down to 11. So this is, this is another way to see the, the huge benefit um, to, the, to the whole cislunar enterprise from having this space source of propellant. Um, let me move on to chart eight. Uh, just a second, George. Uh, this is Martin McLaughlin. Are those, those are cube numbers there in orange, or do, or do you have to add them together? No, they're no, they're they're standalone numbers. So, if you have lunar propellant available, it's five thousand a kilogram to get from Earth to the Gateway. If you have, and then if you if you refuel at the Gateway, it's eleven thousand from there to the surface. No, you wouldn't refuel at the Gateway. Um, There's an op for the refueling location is is vehicle dependent. Yeah. For example, when we did the optimization, and this is work we did at ULA, when we did the optimization from Earth to the moon, um, it turns out the optimum refueling point was a fairly highly elliptical orbit, Earth orbit. Um, and, and I, you know, I use the analogy of, uh, you know, fighter jets with, you know, C-130 tankers that, you know, you, you want, there, there is no canonical place to refuel. You refuel where the mission wants to be refueled. Um, okay, so the orange doesn't represent two refueling. It's, it's a single refueling somewhere in Earth or near the Earth. Uh, correct. And it, and it can get you to the gateway for uh, $5,000 a kilogram. Or correct. Yeah. And get you all the way to the surface of the moon for 11. Yep. And that's probably some sort of transfer, highly elliptical transfer orbit, something like uh, GTO. It's a, it's very similar to a GTO. Um, we actually did the, you know, sort of did an optimization sweep of that of that uh, refueling orbit. All right, moving on to chart eight. Um, so, from a market standpoint. Anybody that's going beyond low Earth orbit will benefit from lunar propellant, um, you know, by refueling. And uh, that's, you know, all the commercial guys will benefit. ULA has already come out and said, offered to buy propellant. Blue Origin's talking about it. You know, just recently Jeff Bezos talked about the, you know, the, the lunar ice as a source of propellant. SpaceX is talking about refueling. You know, any NASA mission that's going to the gateway or to the lunar surface would benefit. Um, any of the international guys uh, doing moon villages or, you know, Japanese doing moon valleys would benefit. I've had a lot of discussions with military folks about, you know, the benefits of having space sources of propellant. And we've even started talking about establishing a strategic reserve of propellant in space. Um and uh I you know, so to me, 
you know, if you can make it work from Leo to Geo, then all these other markets are just that much easier. And that's shown by, you know, the, the, you know, the leverage you get, um, <clears throat> on the moon versus taking propellant to the moon that I showed in that previous chart. All right. So that, that's all demand side stuff. Um, and, you know, I want to emphasize that the $500 a kilogram that ULA offered to buy, um, was completely not informed by how much it would cost to produce propellant on the men. So to address that, let's go on to chart nine. Um, when I left ULA and joined School of Mines, um, we actually uh, did a study that, that I had initiated before I left um, and put the money aside. So the initial study on, on a lunar mining architecture was paid for by ULA. Uh, and this graphic was done by ULA. Um, but the basic idea here is that, um, you know, you're trying to find the, the cheapest possible way to extract um, the most accessible ice on the moon. And so this architecture does not represent, a, you know, a down-the-road mature, you know, Architecture. This is how do I get that very first one established for the least amount of money possible? Um, and so the, you know, the basic idea is to use um, reflected sunlight. Um, one of the interesting uh, points about the moon is that the permanently shadowed areas at the lunar poles are also are are geographically close to areas that have you know, nearly permanently sunlight, or ne nearly permanent sunlight. Um, you can think of them as the crater rims versus the crater bottoms. And so our idea was to use reflected sunlight from the crater rims. Uh, the inspiration for this was a NIAC that was done by Adrian Stoika from JPL. Um, <clears throat> but there are also <clears throat> places on Earth. Uh, for example, there's a village in Norway whose name escapes me at the moment, that is permanently shadowed during the winter, uh, which made the inhabitants sad. Um, and so they went to the ridgetop nearby and put a big heliostat up there to reflect sunlight down into the village during the winter. Um, <clears throat> so this technique is, is, is pretty uh, is used today on Earth. Um, reflected sunlight does two jobs. Uh, one that you can see on the, the lower left is that the light uh, impinges on some secondary optics that are above a dome-shaped um, object or structure that you can see there. Um, that's where the ice extraction is. So chart 10 uh, just gives you a little bit more detail on this capture tent concept. Um, you have the sunlight coming down from crater rim through some secondary optics uh, directed onto the lunar surface. Um, and you can see that, you know, the sublimation comes up, um, and then the vapor finds its way into these cold traps, which are out in the cold and where it refreezes. Um, you know, the, the inner surface of this tent, um, it needs to be kept warm. And right now we think that just, uh, having the right kinds of coatings on that surface on that tent would be sufficient. Um, you can see we've also included an option to have conducting rods or heating elements, um, and and this is to address the the potential that as we desiccate the you know the upper layers of the of the regolith, um, that desiccated regolith becomes a very nice insulator 
and uh, and may keep heat from penetrating further down. So the connecting rods and heating elements allow us to extract ice to greater depth. Um, going on to chart 11. Um, so just within the last month or two, we we uh, were awarded the NIAC Phase One. Uh, thank you, NASA, for uh, to study this concept in more detail. Um, one of our main objectives is to um, create icy regular simulants and test them, test the effectiveness of these various heating methods in our cryogenic vacuum chamber. And uh, you can already see, you know, here's some samples of icy regolith that we're starting to take a look at. Um, and I will say, I, I think this is going to be a challenge. You know, you might, you might think of, you know, all you got to do is mix water with regolith um, and then freeze it. But what that does is create mud, frozen mud. And one of the things we're very certain of is that the, the icy regolith is not frozen mud. Um, there was never a time in which uh, the, the ice or water on the moon was, was in liquid form. And so what we've done in a freezer is take, you know, fine granular ice. Uh, we saved some snow from last winter in Colorado and, and had mixed that. Uh, and that's what you can see on the right-hand side. Uh, we also put a humidifier, a fine mister, into the freezer and, and created uh, very fine um, ice that way, and you can see that mixed in with the uh, with some Highland simulant on the left hand side. So we're gonna we're gonna you know, have fun fooling around with uh, with creating icy icy regular uh, mixtures. Going on to chart twelve, <clears throat> uh, we have put together uh, estimated costs to both develop and build uh, this mining hardware architecture. And you can see some of those costs here. Um, this particular chart is for a commercial-only um, architecture that, that produces the 1,100 metric tons per year that I mentioned on the previous chart. And we use this cost model as the basis for um, running some different business case scenarios. And I'll get into that now. So on chart, th chart 13, uh, our business cases were based on some general assumptions. Um, you know, the first assumption was that the cost of the resource exploration campaign uh, was not borne by the commercial mining company, and our, the hope here was that, you know, there's enough synergy with science and enough benefit from establishing this resource uh, that um, between NASA and ESA that, that most of that work could get done. Uh, we assumed that it would take four years to develop and build. Uh, the ice mining and propellant production systems. <clears throat> we assumed a one-year delivery campaign um, and set up on the lunar surface, and then uh, we used the 10-year operational life uh, to calculate the the, the business returns. <clears throat> uh, we took a look at three different scenarios for the business case. Uh, the first one, uh, you know, obviously the most challenging, is commercial only. In this case, the market is propellant delivered to LEO um, that's used to refuel upper stages that's, that are taking commercial satellites up to geosynchronous orbit or any other beyond LEO destination for that matter. 
Um, the price was 3000 a kilogram in Leo, which equates to the 500 on the lunar surface. And then, as I mentioned before, the demand was 1,100 tons per year. Um, scenario two included um, some modest amounts of NASA demand. Um, and uh, this was selected to be 100 metric tons per year. Um, and the idea here was that this propellant would be used to move uh, landers from the lunar surface back up to the gateway. Um, and uh, in this scenario, number two, we assume that NASA would institute a COTS-like program and, and uh, contribute to the upfront investment. And again, somewhat arbitrarily picked a number of $800 million as a one-time fixed investment in the development of the system. Let's see, scenario three had the same NASA demand, but in this case, um, NASA did not up, do an upfront investment, but agreed to pay a premium price uh, for a propellant on the lunar surface. And again, you know, picking a round number, uh, used $10,000 a kilogram. It's still much cheaper than bringing that propellant from Earth. Um, but it's, again, higher than, than what the commercial commodity price would be. Um, all of these assumptions going on to chart 16, all of these assumptions are captured uh, in this table. Uh, see the various costs and prices uh, depicted here. At the launch agreement? The term? Chart 16. Okay. All right. So you can see the dif different scenarios. Um, so kind of ticking down through the uh, the different rows, first row was the total propellant production rate, um, 1,100 tons in scenario one, 1,200 tons in the other two. Uh, <clears throat> the commercial price is the same across all scenarios. Uh, the NASA price um, with NASA investment, um, they got they got the benefit of the commercial commodity price without investment. Uh, they were paying a premium price. Um, I scaled the hardware delivery cost based on production um, demand. Uh, the transportation cost is the same across all three. And, again, this is based on actually laid out a deployment campaign, breaking the hardware elements up into different launches, and, again, using, uh, you know, ULA, Vulcan, ACES, commercial prices um, <clears throat> from a couple of years ago. Uh, I've got a, a – sort of wedge in there for annual ops and maintenance costs, and then you can see the annual revenues in each scenario, the NASA investment in each scenario, and then the internal rate of return for the commercial company that's doing the mining operate, running the mining operation. Um, in all cases, the return is positive and not bad. Um, a return of 9.8% is probably, you know, not as good what it would what uh, a company would want based on the risk involved, uh, you know, but you can see for either one of the NASA scenarios, uh, the return for the commercial company um, becomes fairly attractive at 18%. Or, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure it was ever stated. Uh, this this assumes there's there's no human presence. Is that not correct? So, the mining operation itself is uh, assumed to be teleoperated from Earth. Okay. Not not fully autonomous. 
Um, but no humans required to, uh, to operate the mining operation. No, no astronauts is what, because otherwise the cost. No astronauts required for mining. There may be astronauts behind the uh, 100 tons a year of NASA demand. You know, that's refueling human landers that are coming down, you know, to the lunar surface. But those astronauts are not required to help the mining company. <clears throat> Thank you. All right. So going on to chart 17, this kind of, this shows you the uh, the cash flows for the different options, um, <clears throat> you know, basically the cumulative cash. And, uh, you know, all of these curves look like almost every curve I've ever seen like this for aerospace, where you have a lot of investment up front, and you make your money on the back end, hopefully, um, and your time to break even is in is measured in years. Um, you can see for the commercial-only uh, only scenario, you break even around year 10, um, and at the end, but at the end, you've made over two, $2 billion. Um, with NASA participation in a public-private partnership, you know, obviously the returns and the total profits are, are much better. So from a mining company standpoint, um, you know, this doesn't look bad. And you could use this, you know, assuming all the inputs could get validated over time. You know, you could use this to go to investors and and get money and and uh, and set up a company. So, what's in it for NASA? Um, in scenario two, if NASA makes the eight hundred million dollar initial investment, um, it will over the lifetime of the they, over the lifetime they would end up paying. About 1.3 billion total cost for 10 years of propellant supply at 100 tons a year. Um, compared to launching all of that propellant from Earth to the lunar surface, like we did in Apollo, um, that's a three and a half, almost a three and a half billion dollar a year annual savings. <clears throat> and just for grins, I ran an IRR on that. Uh, and came up with 80%, which is pretty darn good returns. And uh, I don't know, as a, as a taxpayer, I, I actually wouldn't mind paying more in taxes if I knew that the government was investing it with an 80% return, annual return. Um, scenario three, no initial investment, so it's obviously you know essentially risk-free for NASA. Um, it's not risk-free for the company because the company has to depend, you know, has to have faith that NASA will uh, buy a billion dollars worth of propellant uh, per year for 10 years. Uh, but it's still a pretty good annual savings uh, compared to launching that propellant from Earth. Um, but, and I'm almost getting close to the end. I know we're, we're at the end of our time. Um, George? This is Harley. Yeah. So you know, there's not a problem with our schedule for running beyond the deadline here. Of course, you've got your own agenda, but if you want to keep on talking to make up for the time that we lost you, that's okay. Yeah, I don't have a hard stop, so I'm willing to keep going. And keep going. Say if people have to leave, then they can leave. Um, I'm almost at the end here. <clears throat> So I, I think I've, on chart 19, I think I've uh, talked most 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 of this. Um, but 
you know, the main point being that the public-private partnership models, I think, work really well, um, both for the private company and NASA. I think it's a win-win situation. And then finally, um, I was going to touch touch on this chart again. I showed this earlier, which is, you know, the different dimensions of, of knowledge that we need to have all this whole thing come together. Um, the geologic knowledge and then all the modifying factors. Um, <clears throat> chart 21 shows my assessment of how far along we are for each of those different factors. You know, geologic knowledge and the color code here is that, you know, red is, you know, as is typical in this industry, red means very immature. We have a lot of uncertainty. Um, yellow is kind of in between and green is pretty good. And uh, the only two reds on the chart, uh, partial reds, are the geologic knowledge um, about the ice. We have some good remote sensing data, but no ground truth. And that's why I think that first ground truth, those first ground truth missions are very important. And I'm very hopeful that NASA will put those into the CLIPS manifest. <clears throat> and then, then under infrastructure, now, right now, we really don't have infrastructure, and what I mean by infrastructure are things like lunar landers, um, communications infrastructure, you know, all that kind of stuff. Not, you know, there are plans in place, um, but nothing currently exists. Um, on the other side of the spectrum, there's a few greens here, partial greens. You know, processing of propellant, of water into propellant is pretty well understood, and uh, there are industrial-scale processes that exist on Earth. And then I think we're in pretty good shape on the legal front. You know, the Commercial Space Act of 2015 um, allows companies to own um, lunar resources that they extract. Um, you know, there's still regulatory gaps and there's still, um, you know, international concern. But, you know, if you're a U.S. company, there really are no impediments at the moment. So with that, um, this is what Shoemaker Crater may look like in 2030. And I'm done, and I apologize for the <clears throat> Internet problems I had and going to take questions as long as you guys want to hang on. That's great. George, thank you. And, again, um, I think you and we all recovered well. I think this worked out fine. Thank you for, for bringing us in on time. But, as I said, we do have uh, – we, we own this line. So if folks want to take the opportunity now to quiz – George, please do so. And I'm going to ask the first question, George. So this is um, slightly challenging and maybe sort of more of a strategic architecture. Um, wh uh, what do you think it will take to convince NASA um, in, in terms of its developing, its evolving architecture for human uh, human return to, to the moon? What do you think it will take uh, to convince NASA that they should put um, real money and planning into some of the early uh, robotic surveys and so on that you talked about to start down the path that you had of your um, that you had uh, several slides earlier of a, a series of increasingly increasingly excuse me sophisticated programs. Yeah, so so I think. I mean, and I would turn that you know that question around. You're the NASA guy, um, but but I've had a lot of conversations with pretty senior people in NASA, 
I think, uh, you know, across the, the senior leadership, um, certainly at SMD and STMD and uh, the ninth floor, I think there's general recognition that, you know, there's a lot of opportunity here. Um, I, I'm pretty optimistic that the, that the CLIPS program guys, you know, have the, have, have getting into a lunar PSR near the top of their list. You know, I understand that in the initial series of awards, they, they were, you know, doing less challenging missions and, you know, with the aim of we got to demonstrate the landing technology first. Um, but I recently saw a chart, um, from SMD on their priorities on lunar science and, and uh, polar volatiles is right at the top. So, I, I I don't think it's going to take a lot um, from that standpoint. You know, further down the road, when when these missions get more complex, I, I you know I think it will be more challenging. I think the harder nut to crack is the you know the 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 HEO guys um, because you know their mantra is well we can't put it in the program until it's proven and. It's not going to get proven until it's in the program. I mean, you, it's the classic catch twenty two there. And I, you know, I'd welcome uh, suggestions from folks on the on the on the call. Um, I mean, if it was me, I would I would put hooks into the architecture. You know, if you're developing, you know, human landers to go to the lunar surface, you know, make them refuelable or make them. You know, have the, allow them to have the capability to be refueled down the road with a simple modification. You know, spar them now, um, so that when the, you know, fuel system is available, you can take advantage of it. Because, you know, the, the, the cost leverage is just tremendous, as I think I've shown. <clears throat> okay, good. Do we have other questions? Got some more time left if we want to take it. Do we have questions for George? I have one question. This is Steve Brody with ISU, if uh, if I can have the floor. Sure. Okay. So, um, to my question, thank you, thank you, George. Fascinating presentation. Um, really, uh, uh, really good stuff there. Um, it, it, it either conceptually or with some engineering, uh, you know, back of the envelope, have you looked at how the numbers and or challenges would change, uh, either with either of two, uh, embryonic technologies? One is uh, ISRU obviously using resources on the moon for some of the structures and whatever else, this water utility, if I, you know, to coin a phrase. Uh, what our utility on the moon would take to get set up. And the other technology is the 3D printing adaptive manufacturing, the whole, uh, which is blowing my mind how fast some of that is moving with manufacturing, you know, producing things intact. So I'll go on mute and look forward to your response. Yeah, so, so none, none of my numbers account, you know, take advantage of, of either one of those things. Um, you know, we, we assumed that all of this hardware would be built on Earth and shipped to the moon. Um, so from that standpoint, it's it's conservative. Um, you know, to the extent that, that, you know, any of those local resources could get utilized, uh, 
Yeah, I think you know the cost would come down. You know, my way of thinking is like it, like I tried to make clear early on. You know, this concept is intended to be for the very first ISRU anything on the moon. And uh, you know, my my opinion is is that propellant ought to come first um, because propellant lowers the cost of everything that comes after. Uh, like I showed in that initial chart, one of those early charts on on costs. Um, <clears throat> now that being said, I think you know the this architecture requires a a landing and launch pad. <clears throat> I can see you know centering of regolith as being utilized to create that that landing pad. Uh, we didn't get into that much detail when we did the architecture. Um, but certainly you wouldn't bring those construction materials from Earth. Um, and then as you imagine this thing, you know, growing into a second generation or third generation plant, then at that point you can start taking advantage of all of those other ISRD things, you know, the added to manufacturing, the building things out of regolith and so on and so forth. <clears throat> okay, great. Okay. So that's, you know, I thought it was a conservative uh, take on those technologies and I appreciate that. Yeah, to me, I mean, somebody, somebody, something has to be first. And to me, this is a great thing to be first because then it, it's kind of a domino. It helps everything that comes after. Uh, how about one last quick question, if somebody has one? Last quick question. Dr. Lilly? Uh, so I have a question uh, for George. Uh, I have a question also. Dr. Lilly, Lilly Consulting. Uh, George, have you uh, considered having a separation phase in the uh, processing of this uh, lunar volatiles? Because you're going to get more than just water ice. You're going to get methane, ammonia, and uh, uh, other other volatiles. Yeah, so I didn't I didn't get into the details of the architecture. We there is a lot more detail that's available than than what was put into this presentation. But the processing there there three main steps to the processing side of this thing. You know, the first step is purification. Like you said, there's going to be a lot of other stuff. Um, and we've actually been thinking a little bit about, you know, are there ways to fine-tune the cold trapping temperatures or anything like that to, to preferentially trap water and not the other stuff. But that that's a level of detail, you know, beyond what I've got here. But, so there will be a purification step. There'll be an electrolysis step, and then their third step will be the uh, the liquefaction step. Um, and, and so all those are envisioned to be in there. Um, I will mention that uh, that Paragon Space Development Company has uh, recently gone on contract with NASA. Uh, they have one of the ISRU BAAs uh, to develop the purification and electrolysis part of this system, and and so. That work is ongoing, and like I said, those technologies are pretty darn, pretty well understood on Earth. You know, the, the challenge here is to make them, you know, lightweight them and and uh, make them capable of operating independently in in these cold temperatures. <clears throat> now, I will say that liquefaction and storage of cryopropellants in these uh, PSRs for the ambient temperature can be on the order of 40 Kelvin is actually one of the easier steps. 
Well, you, you probably have other products uh, besides water uh, that might be valuable. Absolutely, and I think, you know, all those are, are worth investigating down the road. For example, you know, there's ammonia that was that, that was uh, sensed by Elcross, and, you know, if we have permanent human settlement there, having sources of ammonia for, you know, agriculture and breathing air would be pretty important. Yeah, there's a lot of different uh, byproducts of the stuff that's down there. <laughs> Okay, great. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube Podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash We really appreciate feedback. And to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcast or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode if you send me a comment by email i'll write back to you as soon as i can on twitter you can follow us at canada in space and if you use facebook you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page the space queue if you like the show please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app